0: You know the only difference between some of y'all and happiness is what you speak over yourself? You have the power of life and death in your mouth. And you exercise only one side of that tongue. You you speak about your marriage like it's dead. You speak about your children like they're lost forever. You speak about your tomorrow like it's never going to get here or it's going to be worse than today. You got sick a little bit and you're proclaiming death over yourself. You go to work, you talk about how they're laying off, you're probably going to be next. Get that out of your mouth and speak life and believe that if God can live again, you can too. Go ahead, give God a hand clap of praise. I can't preach on the resurrection this morning. We'll be here until Jesus comes back. My God of heaven, touch us in this place, Holy Spirit, and bless my tongue and my spirit and my heart and my mind to be able to deliver this, your word, to your people in Jesus' mighty name. You may be seated. Hallelujah, I'm ready to move. Can somebody say amen? This is week two of a series that I have begun that I intend to preach until we uh, are in our new location. Ready to move. I started this sermon series last week. We are looking at the uh, deliverance of God's people out of Egypt and depositing them into the promised land. And last week we introduced this series with a message about the parting of the Red Sea. Which was a miracle. Somebody say a miracle. Mm -hmm. It was a miracle. And the children of Israel had went through God's deliverance. They'd been liberated from slavery. And their future looked bright once they got through the Red Sea. It's amazing how they went from, from death, certain destruction, to victory just like that. Overnight, God split the Red Sea and brought them out. But now the children of Israel are facing a pretty serious question which is the same question that some of you are facing as I am I now what? what's next? see, see, we talk about miracles because we love miracles we chase miracles but we can't live in the miraculous if there's a miracle happening every moment of every day they stop being miracles the very definition of miracle is something that is extraordinary and so We can't live from miracle to miracle. We have to learn how to appreciate the mundane. And not only appreciate it, but how do we become God's people? Where do we go next? Once God shows up and shows off, what happens next? And I'm going to begin this morning's message with a couple of statements that's going to set the course, not only only for the rest of this message, but for the rest of this series. Here's what God says after He's given you... A miracle. I want you to spend a long, long, long time getting to know everything you can about me. See, God's always present. God's always personally involved in your life. He is always powerfully working in your life. God is always providing for you. And God is incredibly patient. And one of the biggest truths about God is a truth that he wants you and I to understand today. Wherever God leads, God will provide. I wanted to preach this last week. Because I want you to understand that when God leads you to something, God will provide whatever it takes to make that something possible. Listen to me. Listen to me, because it would be unfair, it would be unjust if God asked you to do something and did not provide the resources to make that something possible. Because you and I can't create everything out of nothing, only God can do that. You and I can't move the mountains, only God can do that. You and I, we, we can't speak to the Red Sea and cause it to split open. It takes God to do that. And if God asks you to go somewhere to do something to fulfill a role and He doesn't provide the resources to make it happen, that makes God unjust. So God, if He asks you to do something, if it is in His plan, He is going to give you whatever it takes to make that plan possible. He'll provide the power. He'll provide the people. He'll provide the resources and everything else you need to pursue His purpose. One day, uh, after we moved into the new building, I'll tell you about uh, all the miraculous things and, and help that has come from strange places. But what I want to teach you about today is that while we love miracles, what is more important than miracles is slowly learning how to follow God more and more and more and more. When you don't see a miracle happening, you still follow Him. See, I want you to know that there are two primary ways that God deals with us. One is the miraculous. That's big moments. That's through things that change our lives forever. And then he deals with us from day to day to day. See, miracles are big steps. They are leaps forward. In other words, miracles are from sick to healed. And there's nothing in between. You were sick and now you're healed and it was a miracle. From bound to delivered. And there's nothing in between. You were tied up and now you are free. I once was blind, but now I see. Those are big steps. You were hurt and now you're whole. And God snatched you out of hurt and deposited you into wholeness. And now you are a miracle because of what He did for you. But this Christian experience can't be measured in big steps. See, I've lived enough days and followed him long enough to know that this Christian experience could best be described as a lot of small, obedient steps in the same direction. That no matter how bad life tries to detour me and get me off track... My Christian walk is not defined by the big steps he made, by the big extraordinary things he did, but by just a whole lot of small obedient steps. When I don't see a miracle, when the Red Sea don't seem to be parting, when the sun's not standing still in the Valley of Agilon, and I still just keep taking small forward progressive steps in the same direction. That's what Christianity looks like. When it seems boring, When it seems like nothing is going on, but I just keep on keeping on. That's what my Christian walk is best described as. Let's look look at Exodus chapter 16 this morning, beginning with verse 2. And the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. You know every good story begins with a complaining congregation. I think on the wall up here it says they moaned. (laughs) I've heard some moaning in my time. Verse 3 says, And the children of Israel said to them, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat, and we ate bread till we were full. For you have brought us into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Verse 4 says, And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven. Mm -hmm. What's he going to give? Bread. What they asked him for. Bread. In other words, they got what they asked for. They received what they begged for. Jump down to verse 11. And the Lord spoke with Moses and said, I have heard the complaints of the children of Israel. Speak to them. Tell them at twilight you shall eat meat. And in the morning you shall be filled with bread. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Verse 13. So it was that quail came up at evening and covered the camp. And in the morning the dew lay all around the camp. And when the layer of dew lifted, there on the surface of the wilderness was a small round substance as fine as frost on the ground. Verse 15 says, so when the children of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? What is it? When they saw what they asked God to give them, they didn't recognize it. They begged God for bread, and when God provided it, their response was, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, This is the bread that the Lord has given to you to eat. I find it strange. Last fall, I was studying this passage, I was reading through the book of Exodus. And God began to show me something in the story. And it pertains to this very verse. How his people often spend so much time asking for things, professing that they believe for things, but when that thing that they ask God for shows up, they don't even recognize it. Because God does something that is so overwhelming and so indescribable that they don't recognize it because when they ask God for something, they had small faith and God shows up and blows their faith away. And their only response is, what is it? They don't recognize the miracle when it's sitting in front of them and their only response to it is, what is it? And as I was painting... Yesterday, I began to think and talk to God about this sermon. And I said, we're closing in, God, on our grand opening at our new property. You know what we've asked God for. For almost three years, we've asked God for this. I want to ask you, promise of victory, are we going to recognize it when it finally comes our way? Are we going to recognize the blessing when it shows up? In our midst. Because there's always a danger of God's people not being able to receive the blessing God gave them because it's not what they was looking for. I could show you throughout the, the stories in the Bible about how God missed uh, an opportunity to bless folks not because He didn't have the power, but because they didn't recognize what God was trying to offer them. And, and this, this morning, my, my mandate is to go over to the New Testament. And I'm going to share with you the story of two of Jesus' disciples. Two men who had an opportunity to be blessed and kind of missed what it was Jesus was doing in their midst. Because even for the disciples, it was difficult for the Lord to get them to understand exactly what it was He was doing. The Bible tells us in the story of Philip, the disciple, that when Philip responded to the call to follow Jesus, He was a very practical man. Now it's hard for practical people to walk in faith. It's hard for people that overanalyze and overthink things to just simply walk by faith. And the Bible says in verse 46 that Nathanael asked, he called Nathanael and Philip at the same time. They must have been friends, colleagues, somehow associated because he calls Philip and Nathanael at the same time to follow him. And Nathanael says... Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? I mean, this, this joker is a preacher from Nazareth. Can, what are we going to throw our whole lives away to follow this guy? Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And Philip's answer was, let's go see. The King James says, come and see. But his, his basis was, let's go see. Hey, let's go find out. Because Philip was a kind of man who reasoned by what he could see. See, this was a good thing when getting business accomplished. But it's a drawback when it comes to things of faith. Because faith is not something that forces itself into our lives. Faith is something that has to be exercised. You have to learn how to practice faith. It doesn't shoehorn itself into your life. You have to learn, you have to learn how to lay down what you can see so you can believe through faith. And Philip's life has, had depended on the visual. What he could see, what he could touch, what he could taste, what he could hear, and what he could smell. He's having a hard time getting a handle on faith like many of us do. Oh, I know you're in church on Sunday morning, but how's your faith? See, we don't ever question that. We always say, how's your family? We always say, how's your job? How you feeling? But we don't ever look at somebody and say, how's your faith? which is a much bigger question, by the way. Because if you can get your faith right, the rest of that, y'all ain't going to help me, but see, if you get your faith right, the rest of that stuff will come into order and you'll be able to speak things that are not as though they already are. Because if you get your faith right, something good's about to happen. Can somebody tell God that you believe him by putting your hands together? So Philip had small faith. It's amazing to me who Jesus called. I don't have time to, to go down this road, but... He didn't call people that were full of faith always. He he called a bunch of folks that was messed up, jacked up folks. People who had small faith to little to no faith. And he calls Philip who has little faith. His faith was small. And over in John chapter 6, Jesus is about to do one of his greatest miracles. He's about to feed the multitude. Thousands of people are going to be fed from a little boy's Long John Silver's 2 piece. What happens in this story is uh, something that we overlook. when we're re- Sometimes you've got to read the Bible and sometimes you have to read the Bible. And when you read this story, you find out that Philip, who was the same Philip who said, I don't know, let's go see. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? I don't know. Let's go and see. We won't know unless we go and see. I've got to see it with my own eyes. And here in John chapter 6, Jesus targets Philip. When he's about to perform his greatest miracle, Jesus asks Philip, Philip, where can we buy enough food for these Church of God people? We done passed KFC and Chick-fil-A ain't open on Sunday. Where can we find enough food and enough money to buy this food? And he asks specifically Philip. Philip, the same one who wanted to prove what could be done by what he could see, Jesus targets Philip. But the Bible says Jesus knew what he was going to do anyway. This was a test. The Bible says in verse 6 it was a test for Philip because he already knew what he was going to do. And in verse 7 the Bible says this, Philip, where should we buy this bread? And in verse 7 it says, Lord, eight, eight months' wages could not buy enough bread. To feed all these church people. Have you seen how many church folk have showed up here this Sunday? They like bread. They go over to Texas Roadhouse. All the baskets over there wouldn't be enough to feed these hungry people. Philip already had the bottom line figured out. He starts calculating because he's a businessman. And in his mind, he starts figuring up these huge sums of money. And he says, I I, I got a number. But we don't have any money. Therefore, it can't happen. But what Philip forget forgot was the same thing you forget, and sometimes the same thing I forget, who it was he was talking to. The Bible says he asked Philip specifically because Philip had little faith. He had the kind of faith that had to see it before he could believe it. So he targets Philip specifically and says, Philip, where can we find enough money to feed these people? But this was a test because I already know what it is that I'm going to do. And Philip says, carry the one and subtract the sub-quotient of the tangent of the cosine. And we ain't got enough money, Jesus. And Jesus already knew what he was going to do when he, asked, when he asked Philip the question. Therefore, he had to know what Philip was going to say. This was a test, not for Jesus, not for Matthew, not for Bartholomew, but for Philip. Because Jesus knew when he asked him to come and follow him, he knew with Philip, seeing is belief. But he don't ask us to walk by what we see. He asks us to walk by faith. And not by sight. And Philip forgot who he was talking to. When he did all his calculations and the work was done and the calculator had closed and the order was taken and the final number was there and he said it can't be done, he forgot who it was that he was talking to because he is the one who hung the sun, the moon, and the stars. He is not bound by numerical issues. He is not bound by financial limitations. He is not bound because the doctor says there's no hope. He is not bound because your husband has said he ain't coming back. He's not bound because your kid is locked up in jail. What God says will come to pass and it doesn't matter if it adds up or it doesn't add up. None of that matters when God speaks. See, 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 see what I want you to pay attention to is to how Jesus handles this lack of faith. Because we would have just moved on. Once Philip let us down, once Philip had been walking with us this long and ain't got it figured out yet, Philip's a little slow. I mean, I like Philip. He's a good dude, but he's a little slow on the uptake. I mean, I like Philip, but I can't depend on Philip. I like Philip. He's a good dude, but he's not there when I need him. He's a dabby Downer. He's always got the numbers, but he don't ever have the faith. So how does Jesus respond? Does he respond like you and I do? No. Jesus didn't kick him out of of the club. He, 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 he didn't handle his lack of faith by kicking him out of the discipleship clubhouse. No, he makes sure that when all them baskets was getting took up at the end, Philip got one of them. I always wondered why there was 12 baskets left over after the miracle took place, and of course, we know it was because there was 12 disciples, but I'm not sure he did it for 12 disciples. I think he did it for one disciple. Y'all ain't going to help me. See, had there been one basket full left over and Matthew would have grabbed it, Philip wouldn't have learned what Philip needed to learn. Had there been two baskets left over and Thomas would have got one and Bartholomew would have got one, Philip may have missed the miracle. But when there was 12, that means all 12 disciples had to put their hands on what the leftovers was. And they had to come to grips with, there was no way that this could happen. There was no earthly solution to what we were about to go through. There was no way at the end of this tunnel, there was no way at the end of this scenario I had done the calculations and none of it added up and yet here I stand with a miracle in my hand and it don't make sense and I don't know where it came from and I can't plan it out and I don't know how to make it happen but here I stand I got a miracle in my hand and it doesn't make sense so when it didn't make sense to Philip Jesus forced him to hold Hold on to his miracle. Because what you and I often miss is that the way we look at things affects greatly our response in life. You come to church and I'm glad, but is church getting in you? Or is it affecting the way you respond to life? My wife and sister Alicia, they worry about how you respond to them. After 20 some years of doing this, I still worry about how you respond to me. But what I, want, what I really want you to do is respond to what you get in here. Because I know you can respond by clapping your hands and shouting all over the church. But I want to know if you can respond when you get out there. And he's got a basket full of, of miracle left over. And you are standing not in the church house, but you're standing in the oncologist's office. You're standing in the, in the courtroom. You're standing there watching somebody that you love destroy their marriage and destroy their life. What's that miracle in your hands? And is it affecting your decision on Tuesday like it affected you on Sunday? Little steps of obedience in the same direction. See, that is good preaching. I'll pat myself on the back. Because in a lot of ways, it affects the quality of your life. And whether you are stifled or you're growing, See, if it wasn't bad enough that Jesus had Philip in the group. He had to mess with Philip. He always had to be worried about whether Philip was going to believe. He had Thomas too. Did you hear what she just called him? Doubting Thomas. That's what I learned in Sunday school. And and, and John chapter 11 is a story about that, that you know about Lazarus. How Jesus was... Gonna go to Bethany, raise Lazarus from the deep. Because Lazarus was Jesus' friend and he had died. And, 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 and Lazarus' Lazarus's sisters, Mary and Martha, they got on Instagram and told Jesus that Lazarus was sick and was about to die. Remember that? Remember how they tweeted Jesus? And Jesus didn't go? Remember how Jesus deliberately withheld going to see him? And, and, and he didn't go see Mary and he didn't go visit Martha and he didn't show up at the hospital when Lazarus was about to die. And his disciples didn't want him to go anyway. See, sometimes you've got to read the Bible, sometimes you got to read the Bible. His disciples didn't want him to go because the last time he went to Bethany, the, the church tried to lay hands on Jesus without prayer. They tried to kill Jesus and stone him to death the last time he was there. And now the disciples figure if we go back down there to Bethany, not only are they gonna kill you, they might kill us too. So when Jesus didn't go, it didn't make them upset. Uh huh. And the Bible says in John chapter 11, verse 16, that Thomas is singled out in his response. Out of all the disciples, when Jesus did not go down to Bethany, here's what Thomas said. Let us also go. So they kill us too. Well, Jesus is going to go. I guess we'll go too. They're going to get him. They're going to get us. And then later, the same disciples who had fed the 5,000, The same disciples who had seen Lazarus risen from the dead. The same disciples that saw the man with the withered hand. The same disciples that saw the blinded eyes open. The same disciples that saw the ten lepers leap and run and praise God. After they had killed Jesus and his body had disappeared. These same disciples were shut up behind closed doors. Scared to death. Because they've killed Jesus. The body is gone. And when they needed faith the most, they had it the least. Can I tell you that just a few moments can turn your whole life around? One phone call can wreck your life. I know, I know I'm talking to holiness people. I know I'm talking to people full of faith. But one text can ruin your life. I know it shouldn't sound that simple. I know that doesn't break down and tell you and, and show you, how, you know, because we're supposed to be full of faith and walking by faith. But I'm telling you that one message can ruin your life. They had seen Jesus' crown, but they weren't ready for his cross. Earlier, they were fighting for who was going to sit at his right hand when he made it to heaven. But ain't nobody jockeying for position beside the cross. No, no, no. They ran and hid when Jesus was hanging on the cross. Peter had started cussing folks out. Little girls by the fire. And then he went back fishing. He said, I'm done with this preaching gig. I go fishing. Judas has went and hung himself because he can't stand what he has done. And all the disciples are scared that they are next. These disciples are just huddled up, hiding, trying to hold it together. Does anybody in this church love Jesus, but sometimes you're just holding it together? I know know some of y'all water walkers. Pray for the bishop. I ain't got as much faith as y'all. I know some of y'all came out of the womb speaking in tongues, and y'all just, I mean, y'all just, y'all raised the dead. Y'all shadow cast on people, and people just jump up and run and get baptized in the Holy Ghost. So you pray for the bishop, I ain't as holy as you are. Because sometimes, I'm going to be honest with you, I love Jesus, but sometimes it's all I can do to just hold myself together. I, I got faith, and I know that in the end, he's working all things for my good, but sometimes it's all I can do to hold myself together. I love him, and I love his church, and I love his calling on my life, but sometimes when I get up in the morning, I I am faced with such difficulty and problems and life has come up against me in such a way that all I can do is grab all the broken pieces and just try to hold myself together. Does anybody know what it's like to love the Lord but just barely holding yourself together? And here in the midst of this mess, they're holding themselves together. They're hiding in a room and all of a sudden, Jesus walks through a locked door Nobody makes an entrance like Jesus. Whether he comes in the midnight hour at 3 o'clock in the morning walking on the water, or he just steps through your closed doors, you can't beat Jesus for grand entrances. The door was shut, but they ain't made a lock strong enough to keep Jesus out. <laughs> Come on, church. And here's what the Bible says in John chapter 20 and verse 24. But Thomas, one of the 12, called Didymus. Now the King James calls him Didymus, but the translation is, you see it on the wall? Twin. One of the twelve was not there. Now this was the same Thomas who had said, I won't believe he's alive until I can stick my hand because I saw him die. I haven't seen him live. I, I believe what I see. Does this sound like somebody else we know in this room? I know what I see, and I can't believe it if I haven't seen it. Thomas was not there when Jesus showed up. And we call him Doubting Thomas. Like Doubting's all he ever did. But I think I owe Thomas an apology. Because he was the one earlier who was willing to die with Jesus. Let us go down to Bethany and we'll die with Jesus. So earlier he's willing to die with Jesus... Now he's doubting. You know why? Because it's easier to die with Jesus than it is to die for Jesus. Now, I sometimes feel like we've not done Thomas justice in the church because we call him Doubting Thomas like he was the only one who ever doubted. But just a few verses back, all them disciples was doubting. None of them wanted to go to Bethany. Because they was all afraid that when we get down there, they're going to kill all of us. Ain't it funny how folk forget where they came from? And then they just judge you where you at like they ain't never been where you ain't going to help me right there. Ain't it funny how folk will look at your situation and the mess you are currently in and forget that they used to be in that same situation. That they were in that same mess and God put them out of that mess. And put them up here and they act high and mighty like they ain't never seen the likes of such. They will look at you and judge you for your lack of faith and the mess you currently have yourself in. I can't believe you made that decision. I can't believe you failed so far like they ain't never done this. And here's these disciples following in the footsteps of Peter, uh, of Philip, and Thomas. They're all doubting Jesus now. And here's one named Didymus, which means twin. Thomas was willing to die with Jesus. Now he's doubting Jesus. How do you go from loving Jesus one day, being full of faith one day, and the next day doubting everything he said? Anybody else ever have... Schizophrenic spiritual personalities. Anybody ever, ever, anybody else ever feel spiritually bipolar sometimes? Like, like, like you are full of faith on Sunday, but come Monday, it's almost like there's two different people down inside Thomas. Almost like he has a twin. I don't know if you know it or not, but everybody's got a twin. Another person lives with you all the time. Some people could have saved their marriage if they would have just known that they were marrying a person who had a twin. Because they, they married one person, but the, another one came back from the honeymoon with them. And they didn't know that. She married him, but they, she got him. And he looks the same, but he ain't the same. Paul said, the stuff I want to do, That ain't the stuff I do. It's the stuff I said I would quit. The stuff I swore I would give up. That's the stuff I end up doing. In Romans chapter 7 verse 24, he says, Oh, wretched man that I am. How can I escape this man, this body of death that follows me around? He's saying, Lord, save me from me. Save me from the twin that's in me. You see, there's another me that you don't see. He wears my clothes. He fixes his hair the same style I do. He drives my truck, sleeps in my bed, knows all my passwords. He answers you sometimes when you call or text at my phone. And sometimes I have to rein him in. Because he looks like me. He sounds like me, but he's not quite me god got to sometimes save me from my twin because my twin will wear me out. My twin will violate trusts that I have built with other folks. He hurts my future. He causes me trouble. He tries to talk me into doubting what God said about me. He tries to tell me to give up. I'm going to tell you the truth. My twin wants to tell you off sometimes. I have to pull my twin back because there's times he wants to say stuff that Jesus wouldn't like me to say. It's your twin that keeps you up at night. It's your twin that's got you all stressed out. You're trying to do right and your twin's trying to pull you out of church. The reason some people don't want you to come over and visit and stay too long is because they got a twin that wants you to go home. And they got them locked up in the closet. But the longer you stay, the likelihood that you're going to meet the other twin. You only met one of them. And the likelihood, the longer you stay, you're about to meet somebody that you was not prepared for. Aye, 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 aye. They're going to step out of the closet. They're going to say, oh, would you like some coffee? When they come back out of the kitchen, they're going to be somebody else. Jekyll, meet hide. So I don't have to preach until I get you saved. I don't have to preach until I get you a breakthrough because you've been to this altar a thousand times. You've cried yourself through more times than you can count. I have to, as the pastor, get your twin delivered. See, one of you is happily married. The twin's got its eyes out. One of you loves to praise the Lord. The twin is tired of being in church all the time. One of you loves people. The twin is sick of being a shoulder for everybody else to cry on. You are a prayerful, faith-filled person. Your twin is hot-headed, short-fused, and don't have time to be doing praying. So Jesus shows up in a room, and he looks dead at Thomas. See, we got this attitude that if you doubt what I say, I'm done with you. We got this attitude, oh, you don't believe me? Quick pop of my neck and I am finished with you. But Jesus said, you doubt me? You need to see? You need to hold a basket before you'll believe? You, you need me to put a miracle in your hands before you can see it. What is it? What is it? You want bread? I'll give you bread. But will you even recognize the miracle when it shows up? Do I have to put it in your hand? Do I have to show you my scars before you'll believe that I am the miracle worker? And that when you pray to me, I'm working all things out to good. And you don't even recognize it when I give you your answer. I'm not talking to Thomas who comes to church. He's not talking to Thomas who plays bass. Sings in the choir. He's talking to Thomas's twin, who tries to talk him out of coming to church on Sunday. I've told you this story before, but my, my father brought my mother flowers on their anniversary. It was a Saturday. I was a junior in high school. He brought my mother flowers for their anniversary. The next day, he packed his bags and left. Walked out on me and her. You see, it wasn't him who left. It was his twin. He brought the flowers. His twin took him down the road. Because you can be here, but your twin already left the building. One of you has forgiven the one who hurt you, but the twin is still mad as a wet hen. I wish I had a witness in here. One of you will come to church and ask for the Word to help you uh, take a step forward, but the, the twin don't want to take a step forward. The twin wants to hold on to stuff and repeat it over and over and over again. One of you has the joy of the Lord, but the twin is depressed and sick of life and don't know what to do. And the twin is trying to get you to just submit to your emotions. While your other self who knows better is trying to follow God in spirit and in truth. So Jesus says, "Feel the hole in my side. feel the nail prints in my hand. He said, I didn't just die for you. I died for that unbelieving, doubting, hateful, mean-spirited, hateful twin of yours too. I didn't just die for the Sunday morning you. The happy you. The contented you. The you who's got it all together. I died for the frustrated, lonely, alienated you. The twin that you don't show to nobody. Stick your hand right there to see how much I paid. Not just to make you healed, but to make you whole. Because I didn't just come to deliver you. I want that hateful, uh, frustrated, lonely twin to get saved too. Now I want you to hear me because history tells us it was Thomas who went to India and preached the gospel and planted churches in Jesus' name. It was this disgruntled twin who accepted the call and ran out to India and had not Jesus stopped by and showed that nail print to Thomas Thomas may never have gotten completely convinced and India may never have heard about Jesus Christ see the devil knows if you ever get together with your twin if you can get all of you under submission to the power that you are about to be undefeated and undisputed and you are about to become a mess for hell to have to deal with He don't want you and your twin to get unified and both of you to get saved. If he can hold on to a little bit of you, y'all ain't gonna help me. See, he don't care if your spirit gets saved. He wants to keep your attitude. He don't care if your heart gives it to Jesus, but he wants to keep your mouth under subjection to him. He don't care if your body is sitting in church. He wants your mind in the fishing hole because your twin can't get saved because if both of you get saved, watch out, devil. Watch out, devil. So today... And in this series, I'm on a mission. Because I didn't really come to make you shout because I've watched people shout in a hot service and then be filing for a divorce three days later. Hello? Shouting is easy. Truth is hard. So, Heavenly Father, I'm on a mission because we need a, a manna moment. When you provide answers that we did not see coming. When you provide answers beyond the scope of our current resources and from the boundaries of our current expectations. A moment where we say, wow, God, what is it? What is it? If I could ever just stop being divided in my faith. If me and my twin would both get under the mantle of your faith. The prophecies over my life could happen. My miracle could take place. See, when I get ready to pray tonight, I need to bring my twin to the altar. I've drugged my old weary bones up enough, but I need to get my lonely twin to the altar, my miserable twin to the altar, my hurt twin, my bitter twin needs to come to the altar Jesus came back in that room for one disciple who was desperate and who was in trouble God didn't just bring you to promise a victory to be a member of a church or to occupy a spot on a pew He brought you because there's destiny on your life He has purpose for you And the devil can't do anything about it, so he just tries to get your twin to control you. Because he can't make you backslide to hell, so he just tries to get your twin to control your Monday. But Jesus comes back just for you. What do I got to do? Do I got to put a miracle in your hand? Do I have to show up and walk through walls to show you? I am who I say I am. Whatever it is I got to do, I'm not above doing it. Because he loves you so much. He'll come back for one person. And make you shout, what is it? What is it? It's my miracle and I didn't recognize it. I prayed for this. And I didn't see it when it came. Help me, Lord, open my eyes of faith. God, right now all over this room, I'm praying for twins everywhere. Don't you, none of you, don't none of you women get nervous. I ain't asking the Lord to open your wombs up with twins. Lord, I'm praying for the twin of every person in this room that we would become unified, that we would become solidified in our faith, and that, God, we would understand that when we ask you, you hear us. We pray according to your will. You give us what we ask for. And, God, in Jesus' mighty name, I pray that every twin in this room would come under subjection. Every part of us, every participle, every parcel piece of us would come under subjection to your word, to your commands, and God, we would live according to your statutes. Not all of us, but, but not some of us, not most of us, but all of us live in accordance to your plan for us. And God, we're ready for a what-is-it type miracle in our life. Grant it in Jesus' name. And the church said, if you can agree with that, will not you just clap your twin on out the room. Will you do that? Just... God bless you. Promise of victory.